Uh, Salamat Pagi. It's good to be with you today. When I was anak kecil, I lived in Indonesia for three years. My father was at Sia Koala University in Bandar Aceh, funded by the Australian government to work on a special training program designed to improve social science research capacity throughout Indonesian universities and Islamic institutes. My mother Barbara was mostly looking after my brother and me, but was beginning research into the Indonesian education system that would become her PhD thesis, and studies of traditional Achenese textiles that would become her book, Tangan Tangan Trumpel, The Hands of Time. It was a pretty extraordinary experience for a child to have. I attended the local Achenese school where lessons were conducted in Indonesian. We spent most of the day singing nation-building songs with a burgeoning uh, Achenese independence movement. The Sahato government was keen to remind people in Aceh they were Indonesian first and Achenese second. We played in the muddy playground and as my mother recalls it, the sole white kid in the class was the only one whose white shirt had turned brown by the end of the day. My friend Nico Farazal and I would explore the local neighbourhood, playing by the river, watching the bigger kids at the volleyball nets, watching Scooby-Doo at Nico's place. Nico is now an officer in the Indonesian military. And when my mother visits for her research, he calls her Tante Barbara. Our next door neighbour, Australian expatriate Lance Castles, had a monkey. One day I was playing with it when it bit me. Now that would have been an issue in Australia, but in 1970s Indonesia, rabies was widespread. My father quickly learned that if the monkey started showing symptoms, we had just 24 hours to get me to a hospital in Singapore and begin the course of injections. Otherwise, I'd probably die. The catch was that our visas only lasted six months and took three months to renew. So the Australian Embassy in Jakarta retained our passports. My dad made a few phone calls and miraculously the passports were flown to us the next day. Better yet, the monkey didn't show any signs of frothing at the mouth. It played happily and so did we. The cohort of Australians who engaged with Indonesia in the immediate decades after independence were an extraordinary group of people. Herb Feith, who created Australian volunteers abroad, believed that volunteering was symbolic of human equality. I still remember his enthusiasm for Indonesia, the way he'd energetically share his ideas with everyone, from President Sukarno to a little child like me. Herb's subsequent PhD thesis was dedicated to his friend Jailani, an Indonesian servant who lived in the city's many slums. When I speak to young, young Australians about to embark on volunteering in Southeast Asia, I encourage them to read Gemma Purdy's biography of Herb Thief before they go. But those Indonesian experts didn't just believe in helping our large neighbour. They also worked to change Australia's policies. The late Jamie Mackey helped draft Control or Colour Bar and organise street protests against the White Australia policy. My father was one of those who marched from Melbourne University between tight rows of police officers to campaign for change. 
In the 1980s, thanks to the repeal of that policy, Crosnell Maria came to live with our family for several years, where she wrote her PhD thesis on the topic of Australian local government corruption, as it happens. My brother Tim and I still call Kusnul our Indonesian big sister. The arc that Indonesia's economy has taken over the past two decades is superbly two generations, is superbly traced out in a new article from the Australian National University's Hal Hill. He notes that while growth rates have moderated in the post-Saharto era, Indonesia has benefited from sound macroeconomic management, economic openness, inclusive social progress, and institutional development. Indonesia still faces significant challenges. My research with Pierre van der Ring on Indonesian inequality illustrates just one of those. But for all the challenges it faces, Professor Hill's major conclusion is one of development success, broadly defined. And yet, Australia has too often neglected our relationship with what Hal Hill calls Asia's third giant. Indonesia is a G20 nation that has 10 times Australia's population, enormous diversity, and ranks as the largest Muslim nation in the world. Indonesia has worked with Australia in countless international forums to secure a more prosperous and peaceful region. Between our two countries, we still have too little economic activity and too few deep interpersonal connections. We need a relationship that's based on more than Batik, Bali and Bintang. This week was to have seen the signing of the Indonesia-Australia Comprehensive Economic Partnership Agreement. Negotiations for the agreement began in 2010, were restarted in 2016 and concluded on the 18th of August 2018. The signing process was derailed when Prime Minister Morrison suggested that Australia might join Guatemala and the United States as the only two countries in the world that place their Israeli embassies in Jerusalem. That in itself speaks volumes about the present state of the Australia-Indonesia relationship. Today, the Prime Minister is quoted in the financial front page of the Financial Review as effectively saying that he's not in a rush to sign that agreement. As Shadow Trade Minister Jason Clares noted, once the bilateral agreement is signed, it'll then go to the Joint Standing Committee on Treaties, which has 20 sitting days, five sittings weeks, to scrutinise the deal. It now looks all but certain that this process will effectively be pushed over until after the next election. And as you know, there's a limit to what can be achieved through preferential bilateral trade agreements. According to the latest Australian, Australian International Business Survey, 7% of businesses identified such agreements as a key reason for choosing their first overseas market. Whatever you think about the quality of the Australia-Indonesia agreement, it's clear that our relationship with Asia and with Indonesia must be considerably deeper. As Bill Shorten recently told the Lowy Institute, Australian foreign policy must be independent, 
confident, ambitious. He pledged that under Labor, foreign policy will speak with a clear Australian accent in the traditions of Doc Evatt and Gareth Evans. Central to Labor's future Asia policy is ensuring more Australians speak an Asian language. And yet when I was born in 1972, there were more Australian school students studying Bahasa Indonesia than there are today. In the decade to 2015, the number of New South Wales Year 12 students studying Mandarin halved. And even then, most were from families who spoke the language at home. Just 153 of those students were studying Chinese as a second language. In the 2012 Australia in the Asian Century White Paper, the Gillard government announced a commitment to ensuring that all Australians had the chance to learn a priority Asian language, Mandarin, Hindi, Japanese and Indonesian. A shortened government will build on this commitment by setting ambitious targets and goals for Asian languages through the Council of Australian Governments. By offering up to 100 teaching scholarships annually for native language speakers in Australia and for top performers in priority Asian languages in Year 12. By improving Asian languages curriculum materials right through from preschool to Year 12. By establishing an advisory council on Asia capabilities headed by experts from academia, the education sector, business and non-profits to drive research and generate new ideas to boost teaching and learning about Asia across all levels of Australia's education system. And by generating national, nationally comparable data on the uptake of Asian languages in Australia. Sadly, I've forgotten most of the Indonesian I knew as a child, but at least three of my parliamentary colleagues, Luke Gosling, Stephen Jones and Chris Bowen, speak Bahasa Indonesia. Language isn't just a communication tool. It's a window into a culture. My three sons don't speak Indonesian, but when we're out in an Asian restaurant and someone says their food is too hot, we'll sometimes ask them to clarify. Do they mean panas or pedas? Because sometimes English just doesn't have the right adjective. We know that many of the jobs of the future will come from Australia plugging into the supply chains of Asia. To do that, corporate Australia needs a deep understanding of our region. Yet AsiaLink's recent report, MatchFit, Shaping Asia Capable Leaders, found that at least eight out of 10 large Australian firms are inadequately equipped to do business in Asia. Labor's future Asia policy will address the lack of Asian business and language literacy at the board level in Australia through measures to better mentor potential directors with that experience to ensure firms can get the Asia-capable talent they need to grow and prosper in the region. We'll also restore funding to important organisations like the Asia Education Foundation so they can continue their good work advocating for better language and literacy capabilities. We'll strengthen linkages with our Asian-based Australian diaspora community so they can help Australian businesses connect into networks to gain the knowledge they need to expand. 
Labor will establish a new category of geoeconomic counsellor across our diplomatic network and four new diplomatic posts in the Indo-Pacific region with a new post in Indonesia a top priority. Future Asia also includes Indonesia-specific initiatives. Earlier this month, Shadow Treasurer Chris Bowen announced that if elected, Labor will deliver a new independent Indonesia economic strategy. Our template for that strategy would be Peter Varghese's India economic strategy report, released last July. That report isn't just for government. It's also directed at businesses. It identifies 10 sectors, from sport to agribusiness, where opportunities exist. Additionally, Chris Bowen announced that a shortened Labor government would pursue an agreement with the Indonesian government for young Australian professionals to gain commercial experience in Indonesia. These young professionals would undertake internships for up to six months. The policy mirrors a program we would seek to establish with the Chinese government. That program, or this program, would allow a thousand Australian nationals and a thousand Indonesian nationals to intern in Indonesia and Australia, respectively. It would provide them with the kind of friendships, business connections and deep understanding that can only come from living in another nation. The future Asia approaches what you'd expect from an alternative government that takes Asia seriously. Under a shortened government, you'd have a foreign minister who speaks Malay and a shadow treasurer who speaks Indonesian. In Matt Thistlethwaite, you'd have a Mandarin speaking assistant minister for treasury and an assistant treasurer whose Indonesian may have faded but whose fond memories of childhood in Indonesia remain. The Australia-Indonesia relationship will be vital to a shortened Labor government. We look forward to working with the many <coughs> experts in this room to make that vision a reality. Thank you very much.